This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Thank you very much. Um, it's an honor to participate in the 2015 Federalist Society Symposium on the Law and Innovation. And it's also very pleasant to be in Chicago since it's about three degrees balmier here than it was in Michigan where I was this morning. Um, although it's still not altogether pleasant, I have to be honest. Um, nonetheless, it's an honor to moderate this introductory panel uh, concerning the administrative state and innovation. While to some of us these might seem to be relatively discordant concepts, um, if there's any group of persons who can connect these ideas and explain their relationship, I believe it's our very outstanding panel this afternoon. It is an expert panel worthy of this symposium, and it's a panel worthy of those of you in the audience who attend Federalist Society symposiums. And this is a panel that's very typical of the Federalist Society panel in terms of the variety and diversity of viewpoint. Federalist Society certainly has a commitment to the rule of law and a limited judiciary, but it recognizes that there are a variety of points of view that are helpful in giving meaning to these concepts, including the perspectives of our founding fathers. Implicit, specifically in the description of this panel, that there are aspects of the administrative process that have distinct consequences for business and social innovation. This flows from the fact that the administrative process is an alternative means of public policy decision-making to the legislative process, if not indeed simply an alternative legislative process. But uh, that, of course, would make it unconstitutional, and we know that it is not. There are obvious differences between these two processes, and such differences seem to me to be consequential in terms of the policy outcomes they produce. Different rules and different procedures have consequences. Perhaps I might be abused of my misconceptions, but it seems to me that the notice and comment uh, process of the administrative agency when compared to the committee and hearing process of the legislature, all else being equal, has a number of distinctions. First, the administrative process attracts less public attention. 
Secondly, it seems generally to involve a narrower range of voices and interests offering perspectives. Third, it involves a narrower range and diversity of decision makers. Fourth, it involves the input of a single constitutional branch of government rather than multiple branches. And fifth, the administrative process seems structured to facilitate the enactment of public policies rather than to impose barriers and obstacles to such enactments as intended by the founding fathers. What then are the implications of these architectural differences between the administrative and legislative processes for the ability of each of these processes to foster an environment in which innovation in trial and error can prosper? As one final aside, I suppose if there was ever the possibility of a real-world experiment in comparing the administrative and legislative processes in terms of their receptiveness to innovation, we will soon, for better or worse, be embarking upon precisely such an experiment during what appears to be a new era of internet regulation overseen by the Federal Communications Commission. <clears throat> what indeed will the internet look like in three or five or seven years? Will there be tools and conveniences and applications of a sort that are as yet uncontemplated? Or will we have America Online, Napster, and the dial-up internet? Let me now introduce the first member of our panel. Each of our members will speak for 10 minutes and then be allowed an additional two minutes at the end of their initial presentations to respond, refute, rebut, and supplement and we'll then have a question and answer period during our remaining time. None of my introductions will do full justice to the careers and achievements of our panelists, but each will hopefully suffice for the moment. Our first panelist is the Honorable John Dudas, who served as Undersecretary of Commerce for Intellectual Property and is Director of the United States Patent and Trademark Office during the administration of George W. Bush. Previously, he served as legal counsel for former Speaker of the House, Dennis Hastert. Mr. Dudas holds a degree in finance from the University of Illinois and a law degree from the University of Chicago Law School, one with which some of you in this room are no doubt familiar. Let me introduce our first speaker, John Dudas. Thanks very much. was in the administration from the administrative law perspective, how we viewed it, what types of things, how we tried to apply cost-benefit analysis, just a, a little, and I think it's a little different view than you might expect. I tried to think of something personal to tell you about how important did people think that, that administrative law was, or what did that look like, and I realized I probably had the right to the example. When I left the administration, I went to practice law, and I uh, needed to get admitted to the Washington, D.C. bar. And when you ask, they ask the question, have you ever been sued? Have you ever been named defendant in a lawsuit? I thought, no, I've never been one. I started to write that. And I thought, oh, wait, I probably have. I remember many times we were sued. So I 
realized I needed to look it up. And at that moment, I had been sued, I think, 127 times. <laughs> five, five years of tenure at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Not all of them really complex, but in, in each and every one of those cases, somebody thought that we'd gotten it wrong. Some of those lawsuits, about seven or eight, were about administrative decisions we'd made when we'd gone through the APA, gone through what we thought was a very careful process. Um, but where a significant part of the community didn't agree, and, and some of those lawsuits took, took many years. Um, I wanted to also tell you a little bit about, so the Patent and Trademark Office is not a user fee, it's, it's only a user fee funded agency, no taxpayer dollars. It's a performance-based organization. Um, it is an agency that actually has very clear and strict metrics. It has right now about a $3 billion budget, over 10,000 employees, it, it doesn't run like a private sector business because it's not a private sector business, but in many ways it was as close as I'd ever seen in government to running like a private sector business. And you actually tried to find out ways that you could run a business more efficiently. Uh, and I used to say all the time that we have the, we issue the best patents anywhere else in, you know, than anyone else in the United States. So we didn't have competition. But we were constantly trying to think how would we operate more like a private sector business. So in that regard, I was impressed that on a number of levels, all the way from senior leadership down to the examiners, about 7,000 examiners, really did think of things in a cost-benefit analysis type of a, of, a, of a way of thinking. They thought about trying to run like a business in many ways. I think we were talking earlier, the examiners themselves, if you sat down and looked at what their dockets looked like, you would realize that they understood cost-benefit analysis because at 95%, uh, getting your, your performance appraisal plan. If you did 95% of your work, that meant that you uh, were not subject to any kind of sanction. So if you lined up, what does it look like? What percentage of work are people getting done? At 95%, there's a certain amount of people that got done. Then it dropped to nothing. There was nothing there. Then 100%, because some people just want to hit 100%. But then at 110%, you got a very specific bonus. So you'd see that there's, you know, nobody did between 100 and 110%, but then it jumped up to 110%. A good percentage of examiners. In 110, and then 120 and 130. So even that right there, you ask yourself, well, why would you have a system that incentivized doing 110, 120, 130? And so we initiated a program and said, listen, if you can do 130, maybe you can do 180. As long as your quality is good, why wouldn't we have some, you know, a situation where examiners can consider, uh, you know, how much work they want to do and let them decide how they want to get that done. This is where some of the complications come in, and it's just a little, a little astray of specifically administrative procedures, but we put that in place, made very clear that examiners had the opportunity to examine at whatever level they wanted, up to 170% goal, and they could continue to have uh, increases in their uh, compensation, and we were sued. And so we were sued, and we spent two and a half years trying to settle that litigation, or not settle it, to win the litigation, and eventually did. Um, but, but essentially, what it was was a special interest in this case. It was the patent uh, patent attorneys, excuse me, the patent examiners union that, that had an issue. I raise that only because, as the leadership of the patent trademark office, I was surprised by how much it was, how, how little it was a bureaucracy, and how much it was a senior leadership team that was trying to run like a business and trying to run constantly thinking about cost benefit, um, trying to think about not just cost benefit of the customers of the office, if you will. Uh, many times, patent attorneys would describe themselves as customers of the office. And at the Patent and Trademark Office, this, this was offensive to some, we didn't view the patent attorneys as customers of the office. We viewed the public as the customers of the office with the product being innovation. The patent attorneys were customers of the office, the service that was provided, uh, but they were interested parties. So that, that's, uh, 
was really a tension that we had at the Patent Trademark Office. Uh, our moderator talked about you know, some of the different tensions you had. I'll give a few examples briefly uh, about where I think cost-benefit analysis played a critical role or where we were thinking about these things and how the situation, uh, how, how it progressed. Uh, one, in one case, we had a rules package called it was based on continuations and claims. I won't go into great detail, but it was, uh, are there any patent attorneys out there now? There, yeah, there are a few. So at the time, it seemed like it was a, a pretty high-stress occasion. And uh, we were basically saying that if you've come to the Patent and Trademark Office, and if you've applied for your patent, and you've gone through the process, and you were denied, gone through the complete process, you have the opportunity to go back and start over again. And you can start over again as many times as you want. And we felt like, looking at the system as a whole, this was a tremendous problem because if you come back to the office five, six, seven times, which was pretty rare, uh, the problem was that now you have over, at one point we had more than 50% of all applications coming into the office were applications that had already been denied. From a perspective of the office, that's fine. We have the work to do, we can continue, we get fees collected each time we did that. But from a standpoint of innovation, it was a terrible example because if you're in there for the fifth time, because either we've done such a poor job which we need to fix, or you're in there for the fifth time because you just don't like what the Patent Trademark Office has to say, but there's a startup company that's coming in for the first time. They've got an innovative product, they want to get their patent, they need to get their, their dollars, and they're standing in line, sometimes waiting three, four, or five years, because our backlog is such that it's either because we're not doing a job that's good enough, or we don't have enough examiners, or there's just too much work. And 54% of that work uh, during the time I was there was work that was redoing. So we were looking at how we had, how we how we address that situation. So when we did our cost benefit analysis at the office, we felt like we were looking at it from the perspective of what's best for the public. Um, we certainly had a, a number of interested parties that that wanted to come in. The biggest problem I saw in the cost benefit analysis at that point was most of the parties, nearly all the parties that came in were very interested parties. They were attorneys that were representing clients before the Patent Trademark Office. They were attorneys. They, they had a, a very intelligent, cogent, important point to make, but we could not bring the general public in. We, tried, we had uh, uh, seminars that we put on throughout the country. We spent a year and a half trying to educate different people. We tried to bring in business people and others. But at the end of the day, and I'm stressing one of the points our moderator made, the people who were wanting to comment were the people that were most interested, most knowledgeable, that had the most to gain or lose from this rule coming through, even though ultimately the public had a lot, lot at stake in this How quickly we can get our innovation, how quickly we can uh, get patents uh, uh, through this process, how quickly we can get companies funded. Um, other examples, I think that we, there are some examples that were good examples of where we were able to work out uh, much better. Uh, one was electronic filing and electronic processing. When I first came to the office, our leadership came and said that we had essentially uh, moved up you know, 100% because we got from 1% electronic filing to 2% electronic filing. So it was true, it was an impressive move that we went up 100%, but 2% still seemed like a, a relatively small, small number. At that point, we decided we were doing things wrong because we were trying to figure out, we were deciding as the agency what our customers wanted or what people wanted to, uh, how they wanted to use the patent trademark office. And in that case, not only did we sit down, not only did we go through the, the rulemaking process, but we actually brought folks in 
from a variety of different areas, sat down and talked about what they needed, what was important to them, how to get things done there. And that, that was not within the, the APA, it was not within the standard procedures for how to do that, but it was uh, extremely productive. So I guess there are, there are different, different uh, examples that I can give of where things went well and where things went poorly from the, the view of the, from the perspective of the office. Uh, but I think from this point, I can, I, I'll, I'll stop there, but I think one of the things we can learn from here, the reason I think I went first was when you realize there were 127 lawsuits against me, it gives a lot, of, a lot of fodder for the next three to talk about exactly why we need reform in this area. So with that, thanks very much. Our next speaker will be Professor William Bode, who is the Neubauer Professor. <laughs> Next we'll have another professor, but of a different name. <laughs> professor Jennifer No is the uh, Neubauer Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. Um, previously she served as Policy Analyst and Special Assistant in the present White House's Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. Uh, Professor Noah holds a degree in economics and politics from Yale University, a degree in political theory from Oxford, and a law degree from the Yale Law School. She clerked for both Judge Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and Justice Stephen Breyer of the United States Supreme Court. Professor. Uh, the, the estimates that they predicted. 
And uh, I'll describe a little bit about how the administration um, attempted to do so and ongoing efforts to institutionalize a culture of look back, as it's, as it's often known, and then also talk about criticisms of the process and um, some reasons to think that uh, other institutions beyond the executive branch, uh, such as the courts, might also play a role um, in the process. And then finally, I'll talk about some of the debate that you may or may not have seen in the popular press about whether a wire review should be extended to the independent agencies. Many people care about this now, as you imagine, because many of the, the financial regulations coming from the Dodd-Frank Act are coming from uh, the independent agencies. And there's a question of uh, whether there should be an executive branch entity reviewing what some people perceive to be the billions of dollars in costs that are being put <coughs> regulations. And I'll say a little bit about uh, the policy um, arguments both ways, and maybe just a note or two about some constitutional arguments. So first, in terms of um, innovations and evolutions in uh, wire review. So the process was first established by executive order by President Reagan. Uh, president overs presidential oversight certainly preceded President Reagan, but he was really the first to institutionalize it uh, through an executive order, Executive Order 12291. And essentially calls for the executive agencies to submit proposed and final rules that are major. And what does major mean? It means either that it has $100 million in impact or more predicted, and interestingly, it also uh, includes a number of other criteria, such as the adverse effects on competition, the economy, and innovation. Uh, the process of a wire review continued uh, in a bipartisan manner. Uh, and, and persists today with Executive Order 12866 under President Clinton. And the first innovation was that President Clinton uh, narrowed the number of rules that he reviewed through OIRA, um, whereas before it was all proposed final rules had to be submitted. Now it was only the significant regulations. And here, too, there was an innovation that because now significant uh, rules were defined as, indeed, again, as $100 million or more, but now uh, the criteria no longer have the word innovation in it, which I hadn't really noticed until you know, thinking about it uh, uh, in the context of this panel. But it also included um, issues such as whether the rule uh, raised novel legal policy issues, uh, whether it would have other um, budgetary impacts. And suffice to say that under this system, uh, a wire review is currently about 500 to 700 significant regulations a year. And I think contrary to what some people think about a wire review, which is that it's this phalanx of economists that are either creating the cost-benefit analyses themselves or having a really heavy hand in um, changing those of agency review, um, it's important to remember a few facts. First of all, uh, WIRE itself only has about two to three PhD economists. I think, well, who's actually reviewing the cost-benefit analysis then? Well, there's two groups. One is um, other entities within the executive office of the president. Okay, so the, the um, economic counsels will often get involved. Economists from other agencies will often get involved. Um, as well as policy analysts within uh, OIRA itself, which and they have more um, policy-specific knowledge and often really serve as, the way I think about it, as, as sort of intra-executive branch commenters on the rules before they're actually released to the public. And once the rule is circulated, you can imagine all the different entities within the executive branch that get involved. And uh, in addition to that, the knowledge that they really bring to the rule is widely dispersed uh, throughout the executive branch, both career civil servants 
that have had decades of experience uh, with many of these policy areas, um, as well as many of the political appointees will, will often get involved as well. Uh, finally, in terms of the final innovation uh, as of yet, we have Executive Order 13563 and 13579 from President Obama, um, which, as I previewed, had sort of two sections that I think are relevant to our topic today. One is a specific section pointing out the importance of uh, innovation and integration. So now, once again, the executive order process sort of invites agencies to think about the impacts of innovation very explicitly. And then second, section six calls for this retrospective analysis that I, that I mentioned earlier. And under that section, in 2012, dozens of federal agencies basically came up with their plans uh, for how they would undertake these uh, retrospective reviews of their own rules. Um, I think that the record on the retrospective review plans is on the whole uh, beneficial and that I think that there were real burdens that were cut as a result of asking agencies to look at the rules that they had in the books to indeed uh, try and evaluate whether they were outdated, outmoded, inefficient, or no longer yielding the, the net benefits that they first predicted. For example, uh, there was an EPA regulation that now eliminated obligation from states to require um, air pollution recovery, um, particular technologies. There was also a Department of uh, Transportation Extension of compliance state for a traffic control rule, um, all of which, again, in aggregate, uh, yielded billions of dollars savings. That said, uh, there were real criticisms that um, the process was a one-time endeavor that uh, agencies didn't really have an internal process for continuing to think about uh, how to revisit their rules. And as a result, uh, there have now been other uh, entities, such as the Ministry of Commerce of the United States, that have gotten involved to say, uh, this is something that really should be continued to be done. So ACUS just came out with this recommendation uh, with a number of suggestions. Finally, uh, let me just say a, a word or two uh, about extending this review process, both the predictive cost-benefit analysis as well as the retrospective review pieces, onto the independent agencies. So as many of us already know, uh, there are constitutional arguments against the extension of presidential review um, to independent agencies. Um, a lot of, none of that arguably is really grounded in the text of the Constitution. Uh, arguably, a lot of that comes from Humphrey's executor, uh, from some dicta from Humphrey's executor, uh, suggesting that there are particular statutory indicia, like removal restrictions, uh, that signal Congress's intent to keep these um, agencies, and Humphrey's it was the Federal Trade Commission, free from presidential control. And as a result, uh, OIRA and the White House has been hesitant about extending its review over the independent agencies for constitutional reasons. And then you can imagine a number of um, policy reasons and political reasons as well. For example, um, the president often benefits from not exercising control over the agencies, right? I mean, does he want to take um, control and oversight responsibilities for the perceived failings of Curious exchange, for example, for the financial crisis and so on. So you can imagine um, a number of stories for why um, the, the review might be resisted from the perspective of OIRA. Um, in terms of the policy reasons to extend it, uh, many of these are being um, encouraged right now by Congress. There's a number of bills that will try to legislate OIRA review over the independent agencies. We may or may not have um, a discussion about that, so the panelists might address that. Um, but by and large, 
The reasons for extending it boil down to, first of all, it provides ex-ante incentives, as we heard, for uh, these agencies to engage in a um, reasoned analysis of the costs of the regulations, as well as the benefits before they're imposed. Um, it promotes structural reforms in the agencies, I think, that also encourage this. So, for example, the Securities Exchange Commission um, has given clearance authority to its chief economist after the D.C. Circuit struck down one of its rules on the basis of its cost-benefit analysis. And I think, by and large, institutionally, that's, that's a positive innovation for the administrative state. And um, I'll also say that there's a very good, there are very good arguments that believe that the financial markets provide a lot of data that allow for cost-benefit analyses. Um, in a way that arguably the environmental markets don't. Finally, I'll just I'll end with some of the criticisms for um, uh, uh, not extending it. Um, and then these are probably familiar to many of you that many people criticize the wire review for being secret, for being non-transparent, um, for being industry-friendly, and just allowing particular special interests to get involved. Um, on that note, I will just say that the, the meeting policy of the wire is actually open to all comers. And so I think a lot of that reflects resource disparities in um, different interest groups rather than necessarily formal policies at OIRA. And um, many people also argue that costs are often easier to measure than the benefits. And therefore, it has a deregulatory bent. Uh, for many, I think that is a good thing. Uh, but I think for many who think that um, cost-benefit analysis should really be even-handed and really impose rationality on the regulatory state, they are skeptical that cost-benefit analysis provides that. So I'll just end by saying that I think there are a lot of really good reasons for um, executive review. Um, and, I'll, and I'll also go further and say that I think that's actually strong, there are stronger reasons for um, the wire review relative to the judicial branch. I think the courts should stay out. I hope that we will have a little bit of debate about that. Thank you, Professor. Our next panelist is Steve Lahotsky, who's the Deputy Chief Counsel for Litigation at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, previously, he served as counsel at Wilmer Hale in Washington, D.C., and as an attorney advisor at the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel. Mr. Lahotsky holds a degree in government from Dartmouth College and a law degree from the Harvard Law School, and he is clerk for both Judge Doug Ginsburg in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and Justice Anton Scalia of the United States Supreme Court. Thank you, and uh, thank you to the Federal Society and uh, the Chicago chapter for um, inviting us all here to be on this panel. Um, I'm the litigator on the panel, and, and John, I should say, in a former life um, in private practice, I was responsible for at least two of those 127 <laughs> against you. It was in your official capacity, yes. not your personal practice. <laughs> not your personal. Um, and, and I'm going to talk about uh, the role of the courts in fostering innovation, uh, both in the administrative state and also, uh, I think, in, in providing space for the private sector, uh, for industry, um, to innovate and to deliver new goods and services. And so I think there might be a point where Jen and I um, join issue on the role of the courts and, and certainly in the field of cost-benefit analysis. And I'm going to try to wrap up my comments towards the end um, by discussing some of the new legislation that's been put out to amend the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, both in terms of the requirements for agencies engaged in major rulemaking and then also uh, what kind of 
change that we have in litigation and challenging rules that do make out of the, the rulemaking process. But, but sort of first, before I got into that, I wanted to do a little bit of framing, just to frame the issue a little bit, and how I was going to approach uh, three particular case studies of litigation um, and how litigation affects innovation in the administrative state. Um, I was at one of those Washington, D.C. cocktail parties and was discussing um, uh, the work of a political scientist who studies military strategy and military innovation. Um, and that got me to thinking that it might have some relevance here. And there are basically three theories, I think, of how uh, militaries innovate, how they deliver essentially new military products and services, how they get better at fighting wars. Uh, the first is sort of top-down innovation. Innovations are imposed by civilian leaders on a sort of slothful military bureaucracy that is resistant to change. And so, you know, innovation tends to occur rapidly uh, due to battlefield conditions or strategic uh, considerations. Germany's blitzkrieg might be one example of that. A second theory is that uh, innovation occurs, you know, from the bottom up, uh, developing through the bureaucracy slowly over time due to the promotion of people as they move up through their particular military service or entity. And the third is sort of inner service competition. Uh, you have, you know, the U.S. Army and Marines competing to be better at land warfare, or you know, every service has an Air Force, and they're all competing to be the best Air Force they can possibly be. Um, and so that's another way that agencies sort of innovate, um, at least in the military field. And I, I think in my experience in private practice, I've sort of seen variations of all three of these. I think the, the first theory, sort of top-down uh, change imposed by leaders, whether they're political leaders or courts, um, is sort of the dominant um, mode of innovation that I've seen, but they're sort of all present in different types of agencies. Um, one wrinkle, of course, is that you know military innovation really deals with only one type of innovation, which is improving the ability of a military to fight. Um, here, I think what we're discussing today is sort of two different types of innovation by two different types of actors. We're discussing both innovation by administrative agencies to develop new ways to achieve their missions, uh, to implement regulations, and you know, to adjudicate disputes. Uh, but then we're also talking about innovation in the private sector, the ability of uh, you know, individuals in the marketplace to develop new goods and services. And so it, it's, not a, it's not a perfect fit. Um, but I think the three areas that I was going to talk about will sort of illustrate both types of innovation. Um, the first is financial regulation. Jen talked a little bit about that, I think, uh, touched on it a little bit with respect to cost-benefit analysis. Second would be regulation uh, of the internet um, and you know, sort of e-commerce, and I think Justice Martin alluded to that. He um, referenced the net neutrality regulations and the FCC, and I think it also includes cybersecurity, um, where you're seeing a lot of different agencies competing for regulatory power to be able to set the standards on what companies um, and others who have private information have to do to protect it. Um, and then the third would be energy policy, where I think both um, in terms of the sort of oil and gas um, revolution, hydraulic fracturing, fracking, which is you know, a, a tremendous um, uh, change in U.S. energy um, production and capability, and then also um, on the flip side, the, the push for renewable energy and to really force technological change uh, and to force the development of some types of technologies that frankly are not economically viable at the moment, but the hope is that with regulation they would be. So first with respect to financial regulation, um, 
And the story, I think, does pick up nicely where Jen left off. You know, she had mentioned that pre every president since President Reagan has imposed cost-benefit analysis requirements on all of the sort of core executive branch agencies. Uh, but thanks, I think, at least to Humphrey's executor, um, and probably also some political considerations, certainly by the Republican presidents as opposed to legal considerations, um, that, that sort of cost-benefit analysis requirement has not been extended to the independent agencies in particular, um, the SEC, CFTC, and the federal banking agencies. Um, and, and so as a result, I think, um, the agencies that, that John worked at, that Jen worked with um, in their positions, developed a lot of expertise, and certainly at least they got a lot of practice um, in doing cost-benefit analysis and thinking about you know, what the costs and benefits were and you know, what the effect was on innovation, competition, and efficiency. Um, the SEC, CFTC, and other banking agencies got none of that experience. They, they really didn't do it. Um, when Congress, uh, when, when the Republican Party took control of Congress in 1994 for the first time in several decades, that began a slew of legislative changes that imposed cost-benefit analysis requirements on the SEC, CFTC, and banking agencies that had not previously existed. So in 1996, Congress passed an act that required the SEC to consider the effect of its rules on efficiency, um, capital formation, and competition. In, in 2000, um, a similar requirement was imposed on the CFTC. In 1994, there was a slightly different cost-benefit analysis statute called the Legal Community Banking Act um, that required banking agencies to consider certain types of administrative costs um, and, and effect on competition in imposing regulation on banks. Um, and a little bit of time passed, I think, before cases started to reach um, the courts of appeals and the district courts, but there are three that sort of really opened up this cost-benefit analysis debate, and in particular, the debate about how it should apply to independent agencies. Uh, the first was in 2005, a uh, decision called Chamber of Commerce versus Reich, written by my former boss, uh, then Chief Judge Doug Ginsburg. I was not working for him at the time. Um, that said that the SEC had failed to engage in cost-benefit analysis with respect to regulation of mutual funds and their composition of directors and chairmen. Um, the second, a couple years later, was um, a case brought by American Equity, a life insurance company, against the SEC, again, alleging inadequate um, cost-benefit analysis in the D.C. Circuit, and an opinion by then Chief Judge Santel, again, vacated and remanded and said, no, you're, you're still getting it wrong, SEC, you need to try again. Um, the third and sort of final case um, in this trilogy was Business Roundtable and Chamber of Commerce versus SEC, which was a challenge to the first um, major rule issued under the Dodd-Frank Act, and there are about 400 of them, I think, all total that will eventually come out of that act, but this was the first concerning um, proxy votes by shareholders to elect um, board of director candidates. And again, yes, the, the D.C. Circuit said, you're still not adequately considering costs and benefits. And I think by that point, the SEC sort of got, got the idea. Um, in 2012, they issued guidance that very closely mirrored the guidance that OMB and OIRA um, issues to agencies about how to conduct cost-benefit analysis. They hired a lot more economists and they put a lot more time and effort um, into considering cost-benefits, the effect on capital formation, efficiency, and market competition. Um, and I think that's really the disciplining effect of the courts. 
um, in getting agencies to essentially innovate when it comes to considering costs and benefits. And I think that also has effects in the private marketplace. I mean, all you know, all of these rules and regulations inhibit the access to capital that companies of all kinds um, need to be able to grow and develop new products and services. Um, the second area that I, I said I want to talk about was sort of internet and e-commerce. Um, and there are really two areas that I had in mind. The first is cybersecurity. Um, it's, a, it's an area that's getting a tremendous amount of attention. Uh, and I think this is definitely an area where there is both competition among a lot of different agencies. Again, especially the independent agencies who have the FTC seeking to use its um, power under the FTC Act, a 1914 statute, um, to regulate the reasonableness of cybersecurity practices in companies. Uh, you have other agencies like the SEC and the banking agencies within their uh, spheres of jurisdiction trying to impose cybersecurity rules uh, for certain sectors of the economy. And then, of course, there's also DHS and each of the other agencies that are concerned about what companies within their particular sector are doing. So, you know, in terms of those three theories about how innovation develops, um, here there's a lot of competition to be either, you know, to demonstrate your leadership in the cybersecurity realm. The FTC has definitely been moving quite aggressively in this area, getting consent orders um, from a lot of different companies that essentially make the FTC the IT director uh, for these companies for 20 years, which, harkening back to another uh, innovative product a century ago, that's no way to run a railroad. Uh, the FTC is not position, especially in an area that changes so rapidly, like cybersecurity um, and you know the internet more generally, um, to, to be able to regulate these things on the fly, especially not through the sort of device of a consent order. Um, I think, and, and there are some companies that are sort of starting to push back against um, the FTC. There's there's a case in the Third Circuit uh, brought by um, Wyndham, uh, which is seeking to, to to counter what the FTC is doing in this area. Um, Internet regulation, of course, is also you know, big in the news with the Title II change. And I think that's another area where you see uh, an agency trying to apply a statute that was intended to reach uh, telephone communications, maybe television and radio, uh, but was not designed with something as incredibly innovative and profound as the Internet. I mean, it's, it's no exaggeration, I think, to say that the Internet is probably the, the most important economic innovation of our lifetime. I mean, all of the companies that will be here tomorrow, from Facebook to Uber to Airbnb to Lyft, um, all of them depend on the internet. And, and of course, you know, the ISPs that deliver internet service, um, you know, also have to have the, the ability to sort of make the investments in order to provide um, capability access for our increasing demands for all sorts of um, internet services, whether it's, you know, Netflix or, you know, Skype or whatever service that you're using, and so many companies, not just individuals, rely on the internet. Um, and so that's another area where there's both the potential to interfere with innovation in the private sector, but also innovative attempts by agencies to use old statutes to address new aspects of the economy. And the final area that I want to touch on briefly is just energy regulation, uh, where again, you see the current administration trying to use greenhouse gas uh, rules, whether it's uh, last term's UR versus EPA case, um, you know, regarding certain types of permitting, um, or whether it's the sort of upcoming challenges um, to the existing source and new source pollution standards. 
um, for coal power plants, and it's you know it's really an attempt to um, force innovation uh, on a mix of energy, you know, shifting from coal to gas and from gas to renewables. Um, I said that I would sort of touch briefly on the, the laws that are or the proposed uh, bills that are pending in Congress. There are really three of them, and, and I think we could get into a little bit more detail probably in the you know, back and forth. Um, there, there are two that are very similar. One is the RAINS Act, which would um, restrict um, major rules from getting out of agencies unless Congress enacts a joint resolution um, giving authorization to them. So the effect would be unless Congress says yes, major rules don't come out. Um, the other is the Regulatory Accountability Act, which I think Jen had alluded to, bring the independent agencies within um, the OIRA um, fiefdom and then also um, put a lot more enhanced um, process requirements for certain major rules that impact the economy and, and major guidance that would also have a significant economic effect. Um, and the third is what's known as the RAPID Act, which would um, speed up the process for getting permitting approval under the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, and other environmental statutes, the idea being to stimulate innovation and new projects, whether it's construction projects or other economic development, um, so that it's not slowed down by what has become an incredibly lengthy process in order to get a permit to start work. And with that, I think I've probably long since succeeded. Our final panelist will be Professor William Bode, who is Assistant Professor of Law here at the University of Chicago. Previously, he was a fellow at the Stanford University Constitutional Law Center. He holds a degree in mathematics from the University of Chicago and a law degree from the Yale Law School. Um, Professor Bode has worked for Judge Mike McConnell of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals and Chief Justice John Roberts of the United States Supreme Court. So, unlike some of the other panelists, I was not able to prepare for this by looking back at my own experience in an administrative agency uh, or in the executive branch supervising administrative agencies or my current experience suing administrative agencies. Uh, so instead, I thought I would look to inspiration in a slightly different place. I thought the only thing that could equal the intellectual rigor of the Federalist Society Student Symposium would be the intellectual rigor of the well-known long-running series, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? <laughs> so I prepared my contribution first by phoning a friend. Um, and this friend will remain anonymous for his own protection for reasons that will soon become clear. Uh, and so I called him and I said, innovation and the administrative state, you know, what do you think? Uh, and he said, no way. <laughs> no way, no way. It's not possible. I'm against it. He said, the administrative state crushes innovation everywhere it goes. Look at the Food and Drug Administration. Look what's happened to American inventiveness after the patent bureaucracy. Look at uh, financial regulation. Look everywhere. So the administrative state is the Goliath that destroys American innovation. Uh, and he said, you know, look at the only areas where American innovation leads the world, the entertainment industry and higher education. So the only ones that are not dominated by Washington bureaucrats, at least not until recently. Um, he said, you know, there's just no way that the administrative state uh, can be a friend to innovation. Now, this friend was not actually Richard Epstein. <laughs> I will forgive you for, what, for wondering if it was. 
started there. And I thought about that, and I thought, well, maybe all of that's right. I'm actually not so sure. Uh, it seems to me there is a, an ambiguity even in the very premise of this panel uh, that Steve hinted at a little bit, which is sort of the relationship between regulation and the administrative state. Now, let's even grant the premise that a lot of regulation is bad for innovation. That regulation, as the prompt to our panel says, can be a significant barrier to innovation, protecting incumbents, and making it harder to bring new goods and services to market. Uh, I happen to believe that, and that that's the source of, of dispute too, and you'll hear a lot of panels about whether that's right or wrong. But what does it actually have to do with the administrative state itself? Because regulation is a substantive choice. You can regulate by legislation, you can regulate uh, through executive branch diktat, you can regulate through courts and the common law method. Uh, all sorts of different government entities can regulate. Whereas the administrative state is primarily a structural choice. It's a question of, of who does the regulating or the deregulating and how they make their decisions. So I see the, the sort of innovation in the administrative state angle. But I immediately started to wonder, you know, is it actually the administrative state that is crushing American innovation, if that's true? Or is it just regulation generally, and sometimes it comes from uh, one set of government officials, and sometimes it comes from another? So I guess I started there. Uh, and it seems to me that the administrative state question is really a question of structure. Uh, Cost-benefit analysis can come from all sorts of places. It can be required by Congress. It can be implemented by the executive branch. It can be resisted by the executive branch. It can be nudged by the courts, and so on. Uh, and yet, then I came around, because structure does affect substance, right? These structural questions are not entirely abstract or irrelevant. They make a difference to what kind of policies happen on the ground. I mean, my career at this law school is so far predicated on that, given that the two courses I teach are structural courses about the structure of the constitutional law and federal courts. So if, it was, if there were no reason to care about the powers of Congress, the powers of the executive branch, the separation of powers, the scope of preemption, other than the fact that they're on the bar exam, uh, I would worry a little bit about what I was doing here. So that's my frame for thinking about the contribution of all my co-panelists. It seems to me there are structural implications, but they're not always straightforward. So then the second question is, well, what are those structural implications? How should we think about the way these different structures affect these regulatory choices? Uh, it seems one reason we care is because we think different structures really could have very different effects on the way uh, regulation works out, whether regulation is oppressive, whether it can change in response to new conditions, and so on. But there again, it's a little bit unclear. The long-run winners and losers are hotly debated. So here my friend kicked in again with an even less helpful suggestion. Uh, he said, use time travel. Imagine that you were on this panel on this topic 80 years ago, and think of what you would have said, and then think about how wrong it would have been. <laughs> so I tried that too. Uh, I actually went through a bunch of law journal articles in, written in 1925 to see what any of them said about the administrative state. Uh, to my initial surprise, the word administrative state, or the phrase administrative state, appeared in none of them. Uh, that, it turns out, is because the phrase administrative state was coined in 1948 by somebody named Dwight Waldo. Uh, so that route was a, a no-go. Uh, but it's not because there wasn't an administrative state. Actually, in 1925, there was a very long and boring treatise published called Federal Departmental Organization and Practice. Uh, and none of its contributions to knowledge about administrative law have made any dent in anything we think about today. Uh, so then, there was no hint that administrative agencies would ever act as a deregulatory force. 
according to this book anyway. Uh, their only job seemed to be to enforce and strengthen various legislative diktats. Um, you know, and I could have come up with a sort of long story from there. Reading this book, I would have thought the administrative state is just going to make everything the legislature does even stronger. Of course, looking at what we have today, what my co-panelists have said, we can see that's not always true. Uh, instead, the administrative state often acts to deregulate. It often acts to take uh, concrete legislative commands and carve out exceptions, uh, to innovate and come up with ways to make them not apply in quite the way that they may have been written, to add cost-benefit analysis to a series of things where Congress may or may not have required it, uh, and of course, KPM too. So those two stories actually have a, a substantive point, uh, which is that the, or two actually, one is that the question of regulatory policy is distinct from the question of administrative structure. Uh, that's point one. Point two is that, of course, while they are related, structure does affect substance. We should be a little bit humble about our abilities to draw long-run inferences from one to the other. Uh, I hope in 80 years somebody decides to look back at our contributions on this panel, and I would not be surprised to learn that we are all completely wrong. <laughs> um, that brings me around to just a, a couple of thoughts keying off of what of the co-panelists have said, and sort of how I walk through these issues, and you might guess it's a little bit different. So I'd sort of walk through structurally one by one. Uh, and question one I'd ask is, should legislatures require, say, cost-benefit analysis or various forms of innovation in regulation? Uh, sure, it sounds like a good idea to me. Um, I think probably the Administrative Procedure Act does need a new look in light of the very different things that administrative agencies now do and the different legal contexts they now exist in. Um, but that's, that's question one, and it doesn't necessarily affect the answers to questions two and three. So the next question is, well, given that Congress doesn't necessarily explicitly say anything about these questions most of the time, how should agencies react? Should agencies just do cost-benefit analysis themselves, even if the legislature doesn't say anything about it. My answer there is maybe, uh, you know, if you're okay with the development of modern Chevron doctrine and the basic idea that agencies get broad scope to implement statutes except where the statute explicitly says no, then this kind of thing seems to make a lot of sense. I have some strong reservations about Chevron, but I haven't really uh, come all the way to saying that we should get rid of it. So I remain sort of agnostic, but, but a little bit worried about that. <coughs> Um, then I get really worried, though, about the way, way, the way these kinds of things are implemented by the executive branch agencies. So thinking about, you know, should a OIRA extend to administrative agencies and worrying that it would be unconstitutional for OIRA to reach independent agencies, I almost wonder if that's, if that's backwards, if it's unconstitutional for it, for it not to. Uh, the, sort of the independent agencies themselves, as many people here probably know, occupy a kind of precarious constitutional position, and the executive branch has an obligation to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. The president has that obligation. So maybe the president should actually be obligated to keep an eye on what all uh, entities who are executing the laws are doing, not just the ones that Congress has sort of put in the in the non-independent box. I'm not sure about that, but, but it does make me wonder if, if we're worrying about the wrong end of the stick. Uh, and then finally, uh, whatever the executive branch agencies do, and especially if they don't, uh, they don't implement cost-benefit analysis, should courts push them towards it? Um, there's a sort of trend in a lot of uh, recent litigation in the DC Circuit and in the Supreme Court, much of which is Steve's fault, um, to sort of have courts do that, have courts implement sort of cost-benefit 
analysis and things like that as a, as a sort of a nudge towards a smarter health and regulatory policy. Uh, and while as a matter of policy, that makes a lot of sense to me, I worry about it a little bit as a matter of law. I worry about uh, courts sort of taking on the role of uh, disciplining agencies uh, or sort of pushing them in the direction of, of what the courts think would be a better regulatory policy. Um, and I worry about it because, of course, those kinds of powers and that kind of judicial role uh, can last from, from era to era and be used in the service of all sorts of regulatory theories. So there was a time when the DC Circuit uh, did this as well and had a kind of relatively aggressive approach to innovating uh, new administrative procedures that it thought would discipline agencies, uh, culminating in a decision called Vermont Yankee that was roundly rejected by the Supreme Court as some of the court stepping outside of its bounds and adding all sorts of administrative hurdles that the courts had no power to invent. And I guess I worry that we're starting to come uh, around to a kind of reverse Vermont Yankee problem uh, in the DC Circuit. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that too, but that's what I worry about. Well, so these things tend to go. We're a little bit over in, in uh, the time that we've expended for this part of our presentation. But before we go to questions, I'm going to ask those of you who wish to ask a question to line up behind one of the microphones. Um, do any of the panelists have any personal points of privilege or anything that affect their life to raise? Well, let's move on then. Um, I'd ask you to be. Um, Identify yourself unless anonymity is critical. And uh, please be as succinct as you reasonably can so that we can get as many questions in as possible in our allotted time. Um, is there a gentleman there? Please try to be as concise as you can in your questions and either direct them to the panel generally or toward a specific member of the panel who would. My name is Daniel Robin. My question. Uh, concerns cost-benefit analysis. I'm interested in the closest we can get to creative destruction, but I'm, I'm expressing my ignorance. What is cost-benefit analysis? Uh, are you comparing 12 different regulatory options to discover which has the best cost-benefit analysis, or are you simply analyzing a single proposed regulation and seeing do the costs exceed the benefits. Thank you. So I think this out of that. Um, so I think the best way to answer that is to try and analyze on two levels. One, I think that there are different analytic ways to think about cost-benefit analysis. And I'll say something about how I think it works in practice in the government. Okay? So analytically, um, the there are three approaches to thinking about cost-benefit analysis that I think are illustrated in the separate opinions in a case called Entergy versus uh, Riverkeeper. The first, which is um, exemplified by Scalia's majority, is, is this notion that costs and benefits can be fully monetized, and then different regulatory options can indeed be compared, and then you choose the most, uh, the, the net beneficial option from uh, the standpoint of monetization. By contrast, uh, Justice Breyer's opinion that, um, in that case 
suggests a different approach, which might be thought of as more like a proportionality analysis or, or a reasonableness analysis, which is um, much more qualitative in nature. That is, it allows for the fact that you can't monetize um, many regulatory, um, or rather many, many um, goods. How do we monetize clean air? How do we monetize um, the value of life? And a third approach uh, is one that um, Justice Stevens uh, suggests in his dissent, um, which is to, to say that cost-benefit analysis is monetized, a monetized approach, but it serves as a decision rule rather than simply a process that informs the decision-making process but itself, but is not the uh, rationale upon which you might choose one regulatory option or another. Of these, I think in practice, what cost-benefit analysis does in the agencies is a combination of um, Justice Breyer's conception of it um, with a little bit of Justice Scalia's, and, and I mean that in, this follow, in the following sense, that um, if you look at the actual cost-benefit analysis conducted by agencies, a surprisingly um, a small percentage of them actually monetize everything. Uh, many of them have qualitative costs and benefits, and uh, as a result, I think the effect that it has is uh, really to just increase the transparency of the impacts that the agency thinks the rule will have, even if they're qualitative in nature. And I think in addition to that, it disciplines the kinds of conversations that happen in the conference rooms within these agencies. So in other words, the, the real effect is um, not as a decision rule. That is, there are an incredible number of regulations that uh, have negative net benefits from a monetized perspective, but uh, would still pass uh, cost-benefit understood qualitatively and for the procedural value that it brings to the regulatory process. Yeah, if I could follow up um, with respect to uh, the consideration of alternatives and sort of what what are you looking at? Um, you know, one of the things the Administrative Procedure Act does is it puts the onus on commenters, those who are interested in the regulation, to identify alternatives for the agency to consider. Um, and so if a commenter puts forth you know, an alternative, um, you, know, you, could, you could do X and it would be less costly, or you could do Y and it would be slightly less costly. Um, you know, those are things that the agency needs to consider and, and provide a recent explanation for why they're not pursuing that approach, and they might be able to do it by, you know, explaining why the, you know, either quantitatively, you know, through a monetized cost and benefit analysis, or qualitatively, um, I think different agencies do it differently, right? EPA is probably further along in sort of a quantitative um, measure for some of their costs and benefits than some other agencies. Um, but it really, the sort of what alternatives get thrown into the mix for the agency um, a lot of that really depends on what comments um, the public puts in front of the agency. Uh, I can just give an example from the Patent and Trademark Office. It, 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 it's a variety of different ways, but it starts out as what's our mission and how do we achieve it? I'll give one example, quality of patents. The error rate at the Patent and Trademark Office is 4%. Every time I testified to Congress, somebody held up a terrible patent. I'd say there's 12,000 of those, so we have a 4% error rate. Because if we wanted an ironclad patent, if we wanted it to be perfect, we want every one of them to be perfect. But if for us to get perfect examination, it probably is going to cost $100,000 per patent. That's not how much we're spending. We're spending about $4,000 per patent. So we would start by saying, what is it that we're trying to do to make the system work? If it took seven, <coughs> it take seven years to get the 
patent. If it took 12 years to get a patent, are we making it worthless? So you start out with what I think is a more genuine cost-benefit analysis that aligns with your mission. By the time you're issuing the rules, you're basically trying to, you're not retrofitting, but it's close, I think. A lot of times you think this is the right rule, you do a cost-benefit based just on what the rule is. And even then, we have a lot of debates about what the cost-benefit analysis is there. Is it for the average citizen who's benefiting by having innovation promoted? Or is the cost-benefit analysis what the inventor or the applicant or the patenter faces when they come in and out of the office? So there are various levels of discussion after that. But it's most inspiring state, I would say, it's an agency that's sitting down trying to make certain that their mission is being carried out in the most efficient way possible. Thank you. Next question. My name is Jacqueline Wolf. Uh, my question has been partially answered and also relates to the cost-benefit analysis. I'm wondering if this is a coin or a die, perhaps. It seems like the majority of the panel here agrees, is happy with the cost-benefit analysis requirement. Um, but what would be some other options as far as structural schemes are concerned, if not cost-benefit? I think, I think there are a number of other possibilities, um, some of which are being debated in some of these legislative bills. So an uh, alternative approach to cost-benefit analysis is something called cost-effectiveness analysis. And essentially what that requires the agency to do is to specify some outcome that it wants to achieve pursuant to its mission. And then the project of the agency is to try and minimize the costs. So that's cost-effectiveness analysis, um, in the sense that uh, it doesn't require them to simply balance the benefits and costs. So that would be one alternative approach. Um, another alternative approach is something called break-even analysis. So what break-even analysis does is it, is it acknowledges that there are a number of uncertainties in the regulatory world for which we'll never have data, often called negative uncertainty. And in these situations, it simply asks the agency to consider what would the cost or the benefits have to be in order to justify the rule, allow it to break even. And that's an alternative as well, because again, it doesn't require the complete monetization of all the costs and benefits or the quality of ones. This is actually a question to you and the medical panelists, but is there also sort of an option of, of none of the above? I mean, I'm just kind of agencies making a straightforward, either political or common sense choice, and I don't know, no, no analysis? Or is that not really? Well, yeah, that's certainly the state of affairs. Yeah, that's before. Why are we viewing agencies? Each of the 127 lawsuits said that's exactly what we did. CEO of LabMD, so Steve, I, mean, I know that my company was on the tip of your tongue as a second big case to mention, but uh, as a little scrappy uh, guy fighting the FTC, I want to ask you about common law. Um, talking to many of the other CEOs that have, and this is in the cybersecurity space with the Federal Trade Commission, um, many, the cost of benefit analysis of many of the companies that signed the consent decrees of the FTC is this. This is unjust, this is crazy, this is unfair, write the check, get out. Now, only Wyndham and LabMD have really fought this and in two different prongs. What I see the FTC doing out in the world of privacy and corporations is like using the International Association of Privacy Professionals to create their book on what we want, to make it easy. And they're creating common law, whether officially or unofficially. But that's what's going on right now and what they're fighting. Because to go through the 
judicial process, or in my case, at a congressional investigation, I, I have a soap opera going on, I testify for an oversight. That, people don't have the time for that. So there's a lot of just rollover. What do you think about their agenda? Is there one just to build common law and stand on the radar? Um, well, you know, I think, I think many agencies, pretty much any agency that has adjudication uh, in-house wants to, you know, develop a practice, you know, a pattern of uh, cases that they can rely on. I don't think by any means it's unique to the FTC. Um, you know, there have been a lot of stories recently about uh, the SEC and the CFTC and many other agencies. Um, instead of bringing cases, you know, enforcement proceedings in the courts, instead they're uh, moving to their own, you know, in-house uh, ALJ proceedings, and, and there are a number of lawsuits that have been filed um, in the Southern District of New York and, and other district courts um, to challenge those on a number of different grounds. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure what the, the motivations are other than uh, they want to win. <laughs> um, and, you know, agencies like everyone else, I think, who litigates, you know, they bring their cases to win. And, um, you know, getting whether it's by a consent order or administrative proceeding or, you know, in the proper cases, taking them to federal court, you know, that's, that's always what they're trying to do. Can I just briefly ask a question? Is there any sense at all that cost-benefit analysis leads to a greater consensus or limits the range or breadth of disputes and disagreements to any greater extent than does the make partisanship of the legislative process? No. <laughs> the next question will come from the <laughs> I think no, this I is mean, the I, I you know it's not Professor Bowen's uh, confidant. <laughs> I wish I had been. I think I would have been more of a street. But I have kind of two related observations about why I think the oxymoron about innovation and administrative law are correct. The first thing is how good are these cost-benefit analysis? And I want to make sort of one practical observation. I've read multiple EPA situations in which they announce that there are $11 worth of benefit for each dollar's worth of cost, whether you're talking about arsenic or old lace or anything else. <laughs> and the thing that immediately comes to me is they're serious about what they're saying. Are they clearly a derelict in their duty? Uh, because you want to make sure that you get to the point where marginal cost and marginal benefit exist and equilibrium. And if you're saying at the margin you've got to be certainly five or six to one on benefits, you should be more stringent than you are. And since more stringent usually means more suicidal, it's quite clear that there's some serious discontinuity between the actual recommendation, the numbers that are used to support it, and so forth. And so uh, the first half of the question to the panel is exactly how is one supposed to make sense of a process which simply finds benefits so extravagant, all speculative to some extent, cost relatively minimal, and why is it consistently that that's a pattern? Uh, and the second question is, I, I think, more structural, and it goes much to what Bill, Will Bode said, which is when you start to think about this kind of system, why do you want to have a cost-benefit analysis at all? To some extent, it's driven by the statutes, which seem to require. And you know, we heard the story about the common law. And if you want to find the death warrant in common law, look at the hand formula as an ordinary mode for interpretation of negligence. Uh, what the common law situation was, and I think it should be the administrative law system, is we don't want ex ante review on a cost-benefit analysis. It's costly, and in most cases, it will come up with lots of false positives. What you want to do is to let the folks get the drugs out there, run their plans, 
And then when they cross a line, slap them with a very strong injunction. And the function of public law is to make sure when the harms are diffuse, you don't have a coordination problem amongst private actors. So the correct question, I think, in many cases is, why is it that we want to slip to this ex-ante sort of device, which doesn't work in environmental law, when the ex-post effect is, I think, much stronger and much more sensible? I mean, essentially, it's a serious question, because if this criticism is right, that 80% of what you guys do for a living is wrong, Mr. Dudas, you know, I worked with you in the PTO, I think you actually are relatively exempt from this kind of criticism, <laughs> given, <laughs> given the sort of work that you actually are doing, unlike the EPA and the FDA and the SEC, um, you're actually doing a registration system, which is a legitimate government function. <laughs> Somebody answered. You're working for the chamber now, right? So you should say amen and then you're Indeed, I mean, the ex-ante, ex-post point that you made is an interesting one, too. I mean, one of the things that's mentioned in sort of the paragraph description of this panel is to note that regulation is often a barrier to entry that, of course, deters innovation. Uh, you know, and, and I guess that is sort of the, the ex-ante um, regulation model is the, you know, barrier to entry at the front end because you've got to have a lot of scratch um, if you want to be a pharmaceutical company to be able to get, you know, past the FDA and, and everything else. Um, so, you know, that that's certainly a very interesting um, dilemma, and I can't say that, you know, I know Why can't you about it, at least in my current <laughs> My, my current employment, you know, I, yeah, I the world as it stands, and I fight to do the best that I can. So, can I take a crack at what you do? So, I guess, I'm not sure about this, because it seems to me that a lot of people in a lot of industries don't want that system. They don't want the system where there are no rules in advance, and you just go out there and see what happens when you cross the line and end up in the courts in part because we end up with a system that we just heard about where you don't necessarily have the force to litigate when you get across the line. And so you do see, in some places, people rushing to administrative agencies to get lines. Say, a safe harbor, they'll preempt state court law so they don't have to worry about the case-by-case common law method in lots of areas. Now, those could be good or bad, but I guess, say, there's a sort of rules versus standards question that's ubiquitous in there. You're missing the essential point. <laughs> which is most of the cases the people in favor of ex-ante rules believe they're better at running the system than their rivals and so essentially by forcing higher inexperienced players to bear higher costs and then to bear lower costs it's raising rivals costs which tends to work that is for example the big companies always know that with respect to the FDA and pharmaceuticals so I, I don't think you'd want to be that way and again the problem with the cost benefit analysis it is encourages you to draft statutes where outputs never matter, it's only inputs that matter. And in this world, we care about outputs and we regulate inputs, which is a huge disjunction. So let me squeeze in two other points. So one is, there's also capture of the ex post review process, and so it's a period question of who gets captured more and how. Well, and on your first question, which I think I have an answer to, uh, one reason you might expect the agencies to load the dice and find too much benefits and too little costs is because they know the courts are looking over their shoulder, and if somebody's going to be checking your homework, you want to build in yourself as much more for as possible, even though it's not necessarily the most honest way to do it, you would do if you were. So in other words, dishonesty is what drives the system.
asks her what cost-benefit analysis brings, despite all of our skepticisms about the documents that are produced by the agencies. And I want to suggest that it actually structures the deliberation that occurs within agencies in a different way than a partisan conversation <coughs> in a legislative hearing might. In the following sense, and this goes to the question of questions as well, that um, cost-benefit analysis requires all the, the, the uh, rulemaking staff around the table um, to, again, have these conversations about what are the various options that exist for confronting this regulatory problem. And in this sense, it's a very creative process that I think sounds much more as an ex-ante standard rather than an ex-ante rule that's really imposed on the agencies. And I think that has a lot of, again, benefits. We've talked about transparency. I think it ultimately produces <coughs> social welfare benefits as well. Um, again, that aren't always reflected in, in a lot of documents that result. I'll just say one quick thing, too, about um, the speculative benefits and costs. Um, uh, I think this is yet another reason to try and think harder about how to impose retrospective cost-benefit analysis. Because, indeed, many of these are speculative, not because there are pernicious, sort of, uh, pernicious intent to do it, but I think often the data are just lacking. You just, you just don't... I, I know that, but let me, let me criticize the first answer. This is a two-stage process. You have to draft the statute, then you get the review, and there's interaction. The danger of these creative reviews is it gives administrators a strong incentive to encourage Congress to adopt squishy standards which will allow them to become creative. Um, and what you want to do is to avoid that kind of process at all by essentially working on measurable outputs rather than indefinable inputs. And, you know, so for example, I don't want to measure what you put into your smokestack. I want to measure the amount of pollution that comes out of the smokestack. And if you constantly keep to that line, uh, then what OIRA is doing is making rational, or more rational, a defective process. So you're telling me that the disadvantage is a 10 to 1 ratio, it's 5 to 1 ratio, but the other systems I think still better, I better sit down. <laughs> <laughs>
criticism of the look-back process, and I think the right one, was that I encouraged agencies to self-review, which is to say that agencies themselves were charged with doing an internal cost-benefit analysis that wasn't made public, um, and deciding for itself whether indeed the, the actual costs and benefits uh, didn't bear out the way that they predicted. Uh, as a result, neither, I think, the liar or the public really know kind of what the results of those internal retrospective analyses were in the agencies. Um, so this is just to say that a liar didn't really enforce the, the retrospective review on a case-by-case -case basis. And I think that uh, your question suggests that we might want um, more public releases of those retrospective cost-benefit analyses and to allow that evaluation to happen. Uh, the second thing I'll just say quickly is that um, there is a real need for um, academics and think tanks and um, interest groups to engage in more of this um, retrospective cost-benefit analysis themselves. So uh, for example, in terms of academic studies, there are only a handful of retrospective cost-benefit analyses. We can talk you know, for a long time about the, the data problems that are resolved, but um, right now there's just really not an incentive to do that. And I think once we have the institutional capacity to be able to engage in retrospective cost-benefit analysis, we'll see an improvement in the state of the art, but that doesn't exist right now. I'm going to take a page out of Professor Epstein's book and say, um, well, what's the point if nobody knows the results and we do all these studies and spend all that money and then nobody is acting on this new information and it's not being released to the public or, or our, these... Yeah, I guess one thought is, you know, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So in the sense that I think agencies uh, did actually act on, on many of their... Um, uh, the, the entries that they had in their plans, I think that they continue to. So I think it is just false that there haven't been any sort of um, actions as a result of retrospective review. But your point is certainly right that you know, we have a long way to go. And I think many people are thinking about, again, how to do that institutionally. And there's been talk maybe that Congress could get involved as well to legislate this. And uh, you, one might very well support those efforts. Um, because of these incentives that agencies might have to not continue to engage in it. Thank you. Thank you. Gene? Gene Meyer, Federal Society. I'm just curious as to the reaction of the administrative, uh, the administrative, the response to the administrative state as compared with the responsiveness of, uh, uh, the, of, of, of the other, you know, Treasury State, whatever the, whatever the, uh, what, you know, all, all the cabinet agencies. Is, is the, is, is the administ I don't think the administrative agencies. Are the administrative agencies uh, less responsive, more responsive, about the same? In, in what? I didn't hear yeah, that. Okay. Are the administrative agencies less or more responsive or about the same uh, with, with um, you know, in terms of if, if they issue a, you know, they're, they're involved with something, there's a lot of protest or complaint about it. How easy is it to get something changed, or at least arguments effectively made and heard for changing something in the administrative state versus, a, versus something in a cabinet agency? Well, I guess, you know, Jim, you said you guys have an open door policy and anyone's welcome to come and discuss. So I suppose at least um, uh, you know, you're always. Open to, to discussion um, and you know, yeah, I mean, there are, to hear, hear out the other side or both sides, all sides, right? Right, right. I, mean, I think there are multiple 
avenues in the administrative process where this kind of responsiveness can occur, and Steve just alluded to uh, the OIRA responsiveness and the OIRA process. But of course, I mean, there's the, the uh, notice and comment process as well. Um, there's mixed empirical evidence as to how uh, effective and responsive that is in practice, but um, I think with uh, the increasing sort of common law overlay on notice and comment, requiring the agencies really to um, disclose more of what they actually consider and respond to the comments, I think you know many of those common law developments probably have made the administrative state more responsive. So um, I think in general there are a number of areas, and I'll just, I'll just say uh, finally that we're talking about this in common law review, of course there's the pre-proposal stage as well, and um, many agencies, I believe, um, have um, open door policies or regularly hold meetings with yeah, I think it was um, part of the administrative team, correct if I'm wrong, it's the uh, independent agencies and you know other non-cabinet yeah. agencies. How does their responsiveness to public comment, whether it's you know, industry, general public, you know, whatever other interest group, uh, compare to you know EPA or Commerce or you know, the others? Uh, I, I guess you know my well, one sort of ex experience that I have, and I think people might have very different views about what the right policy outcome of this should be, but it's with respect to the Volcker rule, um, you know, where I think there was an initial approach on, uh, on you know, what the Volcker rule should look like under the Dodd-Frank Act, which of course restricts the proprietary trading activities of banks and other financial institutions, and, um, you know, there are a number of, um, Financial trade associations, not the chamber, but you know the, the, bank, regular, the, the bank and credit union and other um, groups that represent those financial institutions who, you know, put forward a lot of comments and arguments and you know spend time talking with the agencies and you know, I think ultimately they felt like they got that rule into a, a pretty good place and you know, there was no lawsuit at the end of the day and so there was some level of responsiveness. Now again, I think there. Plenty of other people on the other side, better markets groups, and you know Senator Warren, um, and I think probably plenty of people on the right um, side of the aisle too who didn't like the outcome of that rule. Um, but you know, in terms of responsiveness, I guess you know I, I see a fair amount. I, I can give you what I believe is an unvarnished answer from my time. Um, I think the independent agencies probably are just more independent. Um, at the Patent and Trademark Office, certain interest groups came in and objected to rules that were submitted before we before I was there in the Bush administration, they just backed off completely and, and dodged and skipped the rule. So that was what was momentous. And whether we were right or wrong, uh, we took it, took it all away. And we were told, these groups don't like this, you should need to back off, we're going to take you to court, uh, which they did. So I, I think that independent agencies probably um, probably are, are listening, but they're not nearly as intimidated Apropos of this discussion, and as devil's advocate, at least in small part, um, I thought there was an interesting discussion in Phil Camber's relatively new book on uh, whether, the administ whether administrative law is unlawful. He says that when you're talking about communication on the part of members of the public during the notice and comment stage, you're basically communicating with the government as a supplicant in his word. But when you're communicating with the Congress, or presumably with the cabinet agency, with the constitutional institution, with the representative branch of government, you're commenting as a citizen. 
He says there's a big difference between the type of input that occurs in that process and the kind of response that you can expect when you play those different roles. I wonder, again, partly as a devil advocate, devil's advocate, does anybody think there's anything to that argument by Professor Hamburger? So the reason I worry that there's not is because there is a lot of supplicating in the Congress, too, sort of historically. I mean, he takes a historical uh, approach in this book, but part of why we have the administrative state now is because in the first Congress's first period of activity, it got a ton of supplications directly to it. You know, people who wanted the damage for the government, government had sovereign immunities, they couldn't even sue, there was no Federal Court Claims Act. So instead, people would show up with all sorts of very individualized disputes that they had kind of supplication for. And now the petition process has died away and become replaced with the notice and comment process. Uh, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure that's a sort of, I'm not, I'm not sure it's quite the difference he thinks it is. But I do think it's, it's some point there. Let's go to the next question. Brian Lipschutz, a Yale chapter. Um, so I think this question is for Professor Bode. You hinted at the, the originalist's concern with the, the, uh, the administrative state now. Do you think that pursuing innovation and cost-benefit analysis is consistent with the originalist's overall goal of restoring the Constitution uh, as originally understood, or do you think that those two uh, uh, means of thinking about administrative law are inconsistent? Um, so I should be clear, I'm not confident that it's right that the administrative state is unconstitutional. Uh, although I understand, that, again, I have a lot of friends on the phone who apparently think so. Um, so, you know, I'm tempted to fight the premise. But granting the premise, supposing your goal was to, was to destroy or rein in the administrative state, would it be a bad idea to, to play along and use things like cost-benefit analysis? I'm inclined to think they really are just separate. It's sort of uh, like the question of, uh, you may have long-term views about institutional reform or constitutional reform, but doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong to take advantage of and work with the institutions uh, you have. I mean, that's true even just a precedent on a very basic level. Uh, I think it would be a mistake for most originalists to say they aren't going to like litigate and cite precedents that were decided in a non-originalist manner. Uh, you know, if you are an originalist living in a fallen non-originalist world, you sort of take Find them. Um, maybe it affects some of your choices on the margins, but, but I guess I'm inclined to think that you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> we have a few minutes left. Are there any questions that anyone has about innovation specifically, or any questions about from individuals here who are currently immersed in an administrative law course or constitutional law course? Uh, as to 
whether they actually consider where they're targeting the costs. I mean, there are certain statutes that require certain types of businesses, small businesses in particular, um, to get essentially extra or special consideration um, in, in a regulatory review process and in the OIRA process. And the same thing for states and localities, you know, there's the Unfunded Mandates Act to ensure that uh, regulation is not imposing uh, excess costs on states and localities. And so I, I guess I would say just you know, looking at those types of statutes, there are some actors in the economy that, you know, get some um, or are supposed to get some you know, special consideration. Um, you know, I think in, in practice, you know, they, all agencies that go through notice and comment rulemaking that are you know, putting out a legislative rule have to, you know, check those boxes. Um, for some of them, there's a prospect of a lawsuit. Um, the other, um, so there might be some disciplining effect, but in many instances, those types of reviews are, are not really subject to judicial challenge. And so then, it's just a matter of, I think, how rigorous the interagency review process is. Well, I think just to add to um, the statutory requirements that Steve mentions, the, reg the regulatory flexibility, flexibility act for small businesses, the umbrella for states. Um, there's also a number of executive orders that require um, the effects of rules to be considered by both of these groups, but others as well, like Native Americans and other, and other um, constituencies. Um, and how those feed into the regulatory process is that um, the discussion will center on those what, what are often called distributional effects, that is, uh, looking at how the costs and benefits are actually distributed um, among the population. Um, and I think agencies, one thing to say is that agencies have um, different guidance. So there's a lot of intra-agency variation, in other words, of um, how to take those distributional effects into account. And there's been a push to make those more uniform. Um, there are a lot of institutional reasons why that, that doesn't happen. Um, but, but suffice to say that, uh, that those, those, those distributional effects are often uh, part of the intra-agency rulemaking discussions of, of where the burdens are actually fall. Uh, I, again, my comments are always focused on the patent and trademark office. I'd say there's three ways that we address that. One was we had a micro-entity fee. We had small entity fees that gave half off for small entities and realized that we needed something for very small entities, so 75% off fees for micro-entities, which is not necessarily about regulations, but it's sort of a meat cleaver approach of we recognize that anything we do is going to disproportionately affect the small entity. The second thing was a lot of the rules that we did place, whether we got them right or wrong, was trying to make the system better for the small entrant because we recognized what we believed was serious gaming by uh, large companies in the patent system and, and what they were doing. You know, getting a patent doesn't mean you have an innovation. Uh, having an innovation means you should have a patent. So it's become a bit of a game in terms of how many patents you can get. And the reasons why people uh, apply for patents are not always to protect innovation. Uh, and the third thing that we did uh, was make sure we had special opportunities to reach out to independent vendors and, all, and small groups. It's very hard to get them to organize, uh, but you can go as much as you can. You try to get out um, to them, and it even goes to one of the article that Professor No has, has written talked about how you get more citizens involved, and that's that was really our attempt to do that. Not citizens off the streets, but independent inventors, inventors rather than lobbyists that are uh, representing large companies, which is who we usually met. Or we usually came in that Please. Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, Lee Otis with the Federalist Society. Um, I have a small question, uh, sort of slightly larger question. My small question is for Professor New, 
And um, it's just a how does it work question. Does, does OIRA review the efforts, the retrospective reviews done by the agencies to see if they make any sense or if they're just kind of self-justification? Um, and then my, my larger question is, uh, what do you think the relationship is between regulatory, and this is for everybody, what's the relationship between regulatory innovation and actual innovation? Uh, or put differently, what's the objective of regulatory innovation? Uh, you know, is it to prompt actual innovation, or how should we think about that? Well, so just to answer the first question, um, the first time that the agencies released their retrospective review plans in 2012, OIRA did indeed review um, all of the plans that the agencies released, um, and that entailed a back and forth with the agencies, much like what they do for individual rules, um, asking them to justify uh, their, their um, both the justifications for their plans, but also um, for their uh, the, the goals that they've identified the actual examples that they give that they gave of um, rules that were taken off the books as a result. So to answer the question, yes, the wire did review them. Um, there isn't as of yet a continuing process of that. Um, of course, one way to think about it is that agencies in some ways are going through retrospective review all the time when they, for example, deregulate, right? That that also has to go through notice and comment. And as a result, that will go through a wire review. So in that sense, we'll, we'll get another look at um, particular retrospective reviews. Okay, so is the effort in retrospective review to say, we projected the cost would be so-and-so and the benefits would be so-and-so, but actually, we don't know if that's turned out, and so now we're going to look and see if that's what happened? So in theory, yes. Um, but OIRA doesn't review, it hasn't reviewed, um, the actual um, analyses that agencies have done. Now, there, there, there might be small cases, individual cases, where they might have done that, but the plans as a whole um, were more geared towards how the agencies would set out the processes within themselves to engage in this kind of analysis. But again, in, in, in those plans were concrete examples, and sometimes a wire would review the um, retrospective figures that they gave out at that time. But note that you know, many of these studies take a long time. And at least with the initial effort, agencies had something on the order of 90 days to do it. So there were isolated, um, again, examples where they did present these figures. But it's going to be a much more long-term project to see the extent to which um, retrospective analysis continues um, on the part of the agencies. And that's currently not supervised by OIRA. Okay, I think so. So, is, has anyone done one yet? I guess maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Well, they've done so. So, yes, they've done them informally. Uh, by which I mean, um, you know, they might not have. It's difficult to set up a controlled experiment sure, right, sure. with regulations, and so um, there have been decent efforts to to start those experiments. Um, but as an informal matter, there were there were definitely efforts to do that by the agencies the first time around in 2012. Um, and again, I have reason to think that agencies have put into place other um, institutional mechanisms or designing regulations to be more conducive to retrospective analysis in the future. So just to give you an example, Department of Transportation, remember pilot programs, 
um, to look at um, how to regulate um, texting while driving. And they did it in just particular cities in Connecticut. And the, the goal of that was to try and evaluate the costs and the benefits after they imposed the regulation, much like an experiment. So there are those, those, those examples where that's been done, but that's not the, that's not the mind run of, of public agencies. Just briefly, I can, I can respond to one point on that from a, when it's done right in the agency, the agency is definitely trying to take a look back at its regulations in order to try to become more innovative generally, not more regulatorily innovative, if that makes sense. We had a, a, a our agency had something called an accelerated examination where we said we can do a, a job much more quickly if we do a number of different things, not the least of which we thought the most important thing was patent attorneys needed to be required to give us more information. So you can get through a process where we'll be done in one year, guaranteed one year, average of six months, if you bring in more information, if you don't buy more time, because you can actually buy more time, and if you sit, agree to sit down and have an interview with the examiner. After, patent attorneys are extremely resistant to giving more information. They're worried about a number of things. Um, and we found out at the end of that process when we went back and reviewed it that getting more information wasn't the most important thing. Having the examiner sit down with the applicant and or the patent attorney was the most important thing. And from there, it had a number of initiatives that were based on encouraging or in some cases requiring there to be a, 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 a sit down with the examiner. Uh, so that, that's one example, I think, of looking back and having it be productive, but that was more innovative. Well, let's finish with these two questioners. Thank you. The name's Thomas. I'm a member of the chapter here at the University of Chicago. Uh, my question is this. If the goal is to encourage agency to innovate, presumably in a way that wreaks less havoc on the economy, then to the extent possible isn't the best solution to make them all independently from a funding standpoint, where they all rely on user fees, particularly with agencies, let's say, like the EPA, who grant a lot of petitions. I certainly think that's uh, a big answer. There's no question in my mind that that's the right thing to do. Um, anytime you can get an agency to operate more like a private sector business or give them that type of incentive, as I mentioned, there's not real competition. Um, the only thing I would add to that is, is you know, very soon after the Patent and Trademark Office became a uh, user fee funded agency, Congress began taking money from the fees. And uh, by the time I got there, it was $200 million a year, $750 million. So, you know, it's, you know, we live in an imperfect world and going beyond the scope of your question. We were able to turn that around. Um, but I do think anytime you can get an agency to do, uh, to, to operate more like a business, and that's a way to make an agency operate more like a business, um, then it makes sense. Professor Epstein gave me that escape clause earlier because he knows how scared I was in torts. Thanks for remembering. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but he, he, he made an important point, and, and again, this is probably something that I'm saying that's somewhat arrogant, but I remember working in the agency at the Patent and Trademark Office, and when other agencies came in with rulemakings of certain kinds, I remember what my under-the-breath comment was, which is, we don't really have time for your great thoughts, we're actually doing something. We actually have to issue patents and trademarks and have, uh, you know, do certain things, and I think there is a distinction between agencies that are just tasked with sitting down and making great thoughts and those that have to get something done. I'll, I'll just say quickly that I'm, I'm more skeptical, uh, I think, of, of that model uh, for, for uh, just two, two reasons. Um, one is I think, uh, as we know, it's, it's very difficult to monetize the benefits and therefore set user fees to 
mark the costs of the good. So take a public park, for example. Why do we have user fees set at such a low cost? Despite the fact that people might get incommensurable benefits, might get large benefits from having access to the national parks. Um, I, I think uh, because of that difficulty, I think a user fee funded, sole user fee funded model um, might not be ideal. And um, secondly, I'll just say this, this is the first point, which is just be a lot of public goods. And again, you know, it's, it's very difficult sometimes, I think, to um, just set, to rely solely on, on fees set to the commercial costs. Let's conclude with the top one. <laughs> Uh, my name is Barry Young. I am an alumnus of law school. Here's my question. Are state administrative states better at innovating than the, fed than the federal administrative state? So the only thing I know about this is I learned in the 1925 law <laughs> <laughs> uh, Actually, no, it's true. If you look up executive branch, like that, almost all the things you find are state administrative law articles back in 1925. Uh, there were like a, some new studies about insurance commissioners in various states and how they worked. Uh, in the few things I did find, there was a general assumption that, of course, the federal administrative state, centralization, would be the source of innovation because centralization is rationalization. That's going to have sort of like the greatest minds all put together, solving all problems at once. And that's where, you know, that's where innovation will come from. Obviously, 20, you know, some number of years ago, people started to think the opposite was true, and that states would be experiments, and that would be where innovation came from. So I put this in the category of too soon to tell. Well, we've hardly exhausted the issue of either administrative law or innovation. It'll take at least another day of our conference to do that. But let me thank all of you for your participation, and let's thank our outstanding This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.